thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is just a reminder that everything on the podcast is intended to be informational, educational, and entertaining. This is no way a substitute for therapy or the therapeutic process. If you find yourself in need of more direct support, please reach out for professional help. Or if you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or call 911. Hey everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. I have a special guest with me today. She is a poet, a writer, a grad student at Cornell getting her MFA, and she works on the Morning Creations of Racial Categories project out of Northern Kentucky University, Ms. India Hackle. Hi, India. Hi, LaShonda. You are so welcome. Um, So I want to start the way I start with all of my guests and ask, what is your labor of love? My labor of love is writing. Um, Mainly I write poetry. Um, Under COVID, I have been drawing my hand at songwriting, at um, writing plays. And so I'm just taking it day by day and just diversifying my writing. I love it. So tell us a little bit about how writing became a labor of love for you. Oh, gosh. (laughs) It wasn't always out of love. It was out of um, some odd religious obligation, I want to say. Like, I was writing just, like, poems for, like, the church and things like that. And, of course, my mom loved them. And the church loved them because they were about God, you know what I mean? But it always had a very um, presenting element to it. Like, it wasn't ever, like, in-depth for who I am. So that's where it started. It wasn't a good start, but I'm so grateful for it. It formed who I am. So um, from there, after, I want to say, like, the church, um, I really, I got into depth with it mainly at university, like with just poetry classes and things like that. That's when I said, okay, this is what I want to do for sure. And at first I was scared to major in English because everyone has the whole, what are you doing with that? You're going to be broke for the rest of your life. So I hopped out of English. I hopped back in. I said, this is for sure what I want to do. So that's where it started. Nice. So I definitely, um, I am a writer. Mm-hmm. I am an author. It was really hard for me to say those things, but I will step into them. I am. I'm a writer and an author, but I know that means so, that means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. And so let's just talk a little bit about what writing means to you. Like, what does that mean? What makes a person a writer? What makes you a writer? And how does that uh, show up in mm-hmm. your, your regular daily life? Yeah, um, what makes someone a writer, I would just say, you just have to put those ideas down. I don't know what to say, I think every day, like, we're always having the ideas to write or saying really profound things, even though we don't think they're profound. Um, I think my greatest teachers are normally just ordinary people who say really great things and really poetic things and have no idea. They're just like, oh, I'm just talking. So, um, usually those are my greatest teachers. So, it's a really thin line I think for what makes someone a writer I call many people around me poets because again I hear their poetry I just don't think they do um and for me when it comes to writing like what makes me specifically a writer right um I don't know I think that I had to not had to develop but I developed this sense of lack when I was not writing Mm -hmm. that makes sense so Mm -hmm. it was kind of like okay, (laughs) like, whether I want to make a career out of this or not, this is something that's in me to do. And again, something that when it's absent, I just don't feel whole, I don't feel complete. And writing for me specifically became a sense of freedom and that it's just like, it is a way just to be conscious, just to be present, just to be aware. Um, And so I am addicted to that. And so I, I write. That's beautiful. And I like, just put it down and you're a writer. Anyone can be a writer. And that's one of the things that has struck me on my own writing journey. Um, And I've said before, I participate in a group local here, founded here in Cincinnati called Women Writing for a Change. 
And it is a fantastic organization. Mm -hmm. Um, They do have some classes for all genders, um, not just women, but um, really uh, stepping into community with writing is very important and has been effective for me, as well as the accountability Mm -hmm. that the, the classes and the organization holds. I know that for me, Writing started as this way of expressing my internal experience, so a.k.a. journaling, Mm -hmm. having a diary. Interestingly, I was always aware that someone could find it. Mm -hmm. So I, at a very early age, became a creative writer Mm -hmm. in the sense that I expressed what I wanted to express, but I would make up characters or switch details so that if it were found, it wouldn't come back directly as this was my experience. Mm -hmm. And I did not really think of that as kind of building this creative muscle writing skill until I got to college and took a creative writing class. Mm -hmm. I was like, I've been doing this (laughs) all of my life. I also know that since I was a teenager, I knew that there were books that lived inside of me Mm -hmm. and, um, yeah, I, I didn't do much with that knowledge, and I'm just now starting to kind of make space for that. But what has, you said when you stopped writing, there was this this uh, this void mm-hmm. that you experienced. What lives inside of India in regards to writing? What's, mm-hmm. what's, what's trying to claw its way out of you? Well, <laughs> as long as you were talking about, like, I started off journaling as well. Because I had to also, so one of those, like, say, I woke up, I brushed my teeth, I washed my face, and on we go. Um, and it's, I have a similarity with that, too, with fearful of, like, who's going to find my journals. Like, when I would go outside of this format of writing, I'm just like, okay, just recall your day, just say the events so you remember, things like that. And I remember also, like, trying to hide my journals when I was younger underneath the mattress, but now I'm doing that in a different way, um, and it's all fear. I'll give it that, <laughs> but it's all fear and just being like, okay, I have this story, but it feels like I'm almost recording. Does that make sense? Like just the people around me or the events or experiences I've been through. It almost feels like I'm betraying the characters because mm. it's like, I don't want them to read these stories because they know they're the characters. <laughs> it's just like, I don't want my neighbor to read this poem because guess what? I say my neighbor in this poem or I don't want, um, I even got a piece published and my dad was like, I was quoting him pretty much. He was like the featured um, character in the poem. And I was like, okay, it's great to get published and I'll never read it to him. Like, so I have a lot of those stories where it's, um, it's just, and I'm not doing it out of, anything but love but at the same time I'm trying to figure out like okay I don't want to tell your story does that make sense Mm -hmm. and I'm trying to figure out how to find that balance between I'm telling the story and your characters and my story not the other way around does that make sense so uh, that's what I'm going through now like I was I grew up with my mom and my sister and so I have ideas like for play for that and I'm just like fearful okay (laughs) I don't want you to hear this story and then when it comes to poems I feel a lot more free just because I think that poetry is a smaller world and I don't think many people access it for one and I also feel a lot more free in it because I usually pick up on strangers or just people I'm no longer in contact with so I'm like yep that was about you Mm -hmm. and so um when it has to deal with encounters with race or um lovers or whatever it's just, I just feel very detached to it by the time I write it mm-hmm. so yeah no that makes sense and I, I want to talk about how real that is mm-hmm. so um the book I'm currently working on is part memoir part self-help kind of thing and there is this point where I've had to make um a commitment to authenticity and transparency for myself as well as starting to have some conversations with people close in my life to say exactly what you said. I cannot and will not tell your story unless you give me permission. But where you intersect with my story, my story will be told. Mm -hmm. And that's not always easy because the stories are not always pleasant. Um, They don't always paint a picture. What What I would hope and will make sure that, you know, people understand throughout my writing is it is through my lens. Mm-hmm. I I think I have a, a wide 
slightly more objective lens than the average person because yeah. uh, I intentionally do uh, work on making it so but it is one version right. of a story but it needs to be told mm-hmm. and so what I can appreciate is the the challenge of when other people intersect with our stories and yeah. and what does that look like um so have you seen Hamilton the musical I have not, but for some reason, I don't have the whole soundtrack. <laughs> well, of course. Who does? I, you know, if it's soundtrack-based, I right. listen to it a thousand <laughs> times. But yeah. the song, I Wrote My Way Out, always mm-hmm. strikes me. Um, yes. Just kind of this song that talks about when all of these situations happen, mm-hmm. I wrote my way out. Yeah. And as I think about my personal journey, writing is healing Writing is activism. Writing is so many things. So Mm -hmm. what are some of the things that writing is to India? How how does she use writing um, for these various purposes? Yeah, um, I'll get to my list. I want to touch on activism really fast because that's been something that's been on my mind. Um, I feel like ever since COVID and... um, like just George Floyd and things, it's just, it's like, oh, well, there's extra eyes almost as to like, what are you doing? You know what I mean? It's kind of like what I was doing before I will be doing like after. Of course, everything needs revision, but at the same time, that is a form of activism. You know what I mean? It's a voice that needs to be recorded because people have been writing for hundreds of years, they just haven't been listened to. And whatever mm-hmm. I'm writing, probably wouldn't even listen to for another hundred or so years. So it's like, I get that that's the cycle. But um, I would definitely agree to activism. Um, I would say writing for me also is a form of silence, um, a needed silence. <laughs> I just think that almost every aspect of, I guess, myself growing up, like rather it was religion or or family ties or um let me see even even just growing up in a mostly like white neighborhood and things like that it was just very loud i don't want to say that like just the different voices the different um characters you have to play almost Mm -hmm. um uh the performing elements of it all i think everything about it when i look back it's just very loud. And I think that, again, that's why I say writing, I put it with consciousness, because it's just like a way to say, okay, <laughs> like this is a space where it can be quiet, like in the creating process and also in the creation in and of itself, because most of my writing, I'm honing in on just like a moment. Like it's it's rare for me to try to put in like too much. I'm, I'm growing, don't get me wrong, but at the same time when I read most of my writings, it's just like a moment that I'm trying to capture. And it's very still and it's very quiet as if it's like on an um, examination table. Mm. So quiet um, writing is quiet for me. Um, let's see what else. I gave you freeing, so <laughs> I'll keep that too. But yeah, it's just... Um, I will say empowering as well in the sense of I realize I'm a lot more like bold in the writing than in person if that makes sense so it's all those afterthoughts that you wish you could have articulated mm-hmm. like communicating with someone finally processed because i had the time to sit down work through a situation and then voice myself or the character so i think it's also empowering absolutely i love that let's transition a little bit and begin to talk about poetry specifically yeah. um so in my writing um I had moments, maybe as a younger child, wrote writing poetry, even in college. And poetry to me meant rhyme. Mm -hmm. There's a line that has a word on the end, and the next line needs to match that rhythm, that that word. It has to rhyme. That's what poetry was to me. Mm -hmm. I feel like as as a young person, as a child, that that was the examples of poetry that were given to me. And then... I'm now being exposed to different kinds of writing and someone will say, we're going to read this poem and I can't find a single word to rhyme in it. And I'm like, uh, so yeah. what makes poetry poetry? Yeah. Yeah. I grew up with the same thing with thinking, okay, we're rhyming. Um, and then when I realized that that was a very 
um, I'm not just going to only say European, but it was a very specific style of writing. I learned to like detest that style of writing just because I don't like the control of it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't like how it controls what you're trying to say. Um, so as far as what makes poetry poetry, it's definitely not rhyming, but it, I would just say, I think every piece of poetry, and I won't even get into like quote unquote good poetry, but I think every piece of poetry for sure has to have a moment in it where it's aware of itself and bigger than itself. When workshopping my pieces and my peers' pieces, I realize that it has to have just like, even sometimes it can be a word, a whole line, or a stanza, but um, it just has to have this moment where it's capturing almost like more than the content that's there immediately, if that makes sense. So you think, oh, I'm writing a poem about love. I'm writing, and you say this after, sure, but um, about love, about um, religion, or whatever it may be, about trauma, but you look deeper and there's usually something else there. And again, usually you can't see it, but people workshopping it can, they can say that part you got to keep. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. fix all this, move this around, move this here, take this out. But this is the part you got to keep. So I think a poem can be salvaged as long as it has, again, the tiniest something there to say, okay, this is what matters kind of thing. And this is what you're trying to get at something bigger than what it is. Um, but other than that, yeah, I don't, I don't have many rules for poems. I was, when I first started writing poetry, I was introduced to a lot of rules. People were saying, um, don't scream in a poem, don't have exclamation points, don't say the word love, don't say the word, I don't know, like blood or something like that. And then usually I break them, not because I meant to, I just say, well, this is what I need to write. And then it worked. So it's like... I don't know, most rules I was presented with about what makes poetry or what breaks poetry, um, I found cases where it's okay. It's still a poem. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. um, and most of my poems, I would say sometimes go into more of a dialogue, which I didn't see a lot of when I was first entering like the poetry realm. But again, it, it works and it's still um, considered poetry. So I think that's just a very, very broad, like... <laughs> Yes, this is poetry. It's, it's more so not even is it poetry, it's just can it work or can it function or like what's its purpose? And I think that's the questions you have to ask when looking at a piece of writing. Yeah, that's yeah. good. I like that. I want to come back to this idea of workshopping. But mm -hmm. before I do, what I love about poetry um, as I'm coming to understand it in its vastness mm -hmm. um, is how I see it outside of writing. Yeah. So we talk about poetry in motion. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll touch on MCRCP, but the use of dance and movement mm -hmm. and music. And, and we can call it, that was so poetic. Yeah. You know, I have moments within the counseling space and within the training space that I identify as both poetic and prophetic. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just for listeners who may be thinking about their own writing rules are given. It reminds me of handwriting cursive. Mm -hmm. You're around third grade and this is where you start and this is where you end and this is where the curve is. I don't know anyone over like 12 who writes just like they did when they learned in third grade, exactly. right? Yeah. There, there becomes this own stylistic. How do you get your signature? Mm -hmm. Because you do it the way you do it. Being informed by yeah. what you've learned. And so you know, sometimes there are these rules and I'm at a space and time where in life, I'm just like, who rule is that? Exactly. And who's <laughs> benefiting from that rule being in place? That's yeah. just the life question I'm asking now. And the same with poetry. So not being discouraged. Same thing with art. Mm -hmm. You know, what makes art art? You know, there are not a bunch of rules to say it has to be this way, but I, I love how you were able to explain that. Um, so let, well, let's talk about workshopping at MCRCP, which is Morning the Creation of Racial Categories Project, all together. So yeah. how we met. Mm -hmm. We met because I asked a question. Uh, <laughs> centrally, yeah. that, that is how it went down. Um, so mm -hmm. Morning the Creations of Racial Categories um, is a project uh, 
do I want to say spearheaded, started, originated by mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Joan Ferrante from Northern oh, Kentucky yeah. University. <laughs> and it's her life's work. And so um, there was a documentary that was done. I attended the viewing of this documentary at the Underground Freedom Center here in Cincinnati. And after it was done, a very moving um, piece of work um, I, I noticed the audience and I asked a question more on behalf of people sitting there than myself, which essentially, I don't even remember the question, but it had something to do with what should people do when they get home yeah. and recognize that there is something to mourn. And whatever it was about that question, it struck Joan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I yeah. remember the point. It reminds me of the Uncle Sam poster, I want you, <laughs> you know, she kind of honed in. It was like, I want you kind of yeah. thing. And that, and the rest is history. So yeah. um, you were very heavily involved in the project and we connected through the project, but then we just kind of connected in general. So can you tell the listeners about the um, Morning the Creations of Racial Categories project? Yeah, yeah. So, um, Morning the Creation of Racial Categories project, it was a project founded by Joan Fronte, um, a professor at Northern Kentucky University. And essentially, she, she always jokes she's been doing this since like 1996 or whatever. <laughs> so essentially, um, it's taking years and years of research and instead of just kind of of race in the U.S., and instead of putting that research like in a paper or uh, a book or whatever it may be, instead she had the idea of seeing how it would be communicated to students um, and then how would students take that information and then kind of make it work in their own art. So we have dancers, we have um, artists, we have poets, and... We take these stories, these traumatic stories of racial categories, and we just find ways to embody that in our work. And then that's the project so far. It's just been like a collection of those stories. And usually it's lesser known or repressed stories as well. It's not like your your well-known stories. I don't know how to say that. It's stories that usually capture like, okay, the formation of this category. That's the main thing, the creation of this category. What's the trauma behind that? Because each category has a traumatizing story. So how do we tell that story by just isolating it to a mother and child or a father and son or whatever it may be? We really want to get at those relationships that were torn apart because of racial categories. Yeah, beautiful. So as I came um, to be a collaborator with the project, um, I'm the trauma consultant, one of the trauma consultants, Um, with the project and being able to um, help identify the trauma and put a trauma language to it. Mm -hmm. What I love, love, love about the the project is one that it uses students. Um, There's this idea that students need to be taught and so frequently people are not learning from students. Mm -hmm. And so I love that aspect. I love that it's utilizing the arts. So like you said, dancers and poets and writers and composers and sculpture, you yeah, name it, yeah. we use them. Because academia wants to approach these things from a very cognitive, mm-hmm. prefrontal cortex perspective and trauma lives in the body. And so what the arts are able to do is bypass that cortical thinking. Let's think about it. And it says, let's feel it. And where I've been able to, yeah, give some trauma language. I'm in the documentaries, but my joy is when I'm able to work with the students to help them truly embody what they're working on and connect those historical experiences with the very human nature of the experiences that they have themselves. So the Robert, uh, Mary Gart, Margaret Garner is her name. (laughs) Margaret Garner story. All those names are present. She had a daughter named right. Mary. Robert was Robert her husband. Was Sorry, I just put them all together. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Margaret Garner story. Um, working with, and it was a beautiful uh, dance that was put together for this project. And working with the choreographers and the dancers, you were not alive a hundred years ago. You you weren't there physically. But what was Margaret feeling? What would her body have been doing? And how do you connect that to what your body has done and what you feel? So very, very powerful work. In that process, I was introduced to the workshopping process. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm sure this can take on many iterations across disciplines, but 
um, how I first experienced it was, uh, so India was one of the, the writers, the poets who had brought a piece of work to be workshopped. And um, I ain't gonna lie, I was like, this is awful. <laughs> Not her writing, the fact that there are just a table full of people mm-hmm. going word for word yes. and line by line yes. to essentially critique a piece of work. <laughs> yes. And the the author the creator, their role is to sit, listen, and absorb. Not defend, not justify, but simply answer any questions if necessary and just take the feedback. Now, first of all, I mean, there had to be like almost 15, 20 people around this table. That is 15 to 20 different perspectives, Mm -hmm. lenses, lived experiences, privilege, Mm -hmm. and restriction that's looking at one piece of art. In giving their opinion, I was like, oh, dear God, I never want to be on the receiving end of that. But man, how powerful the workshopping experience was. Now, that literally, I left that workshop and I went like, okay, so why was that traumatizing? (laughs) Why was that trauma for me? I didn't, I was not being critiqued. I did not have a piece of work on the table. But what I realized is my experience growing up was that of perfection. Mm -hmm. Be perfect so you don't get criticized. Do it right so no one can say anything bad. And it's an unattainable goal. Yeah. But the humility and the the freedom mm-hmm. and just the growth that it takes a person to lay their work on that table and say, I'm mm-hmm. ready and open, yeah. it was transformative. And I was just thinking, like, how do I get my self my personhood there right yeah so even with the podcast it's like it's out there Mm -hmm. and I how can I be open to hundreds of different perspectives and Mm -hmm. lenses and privileges and restrictions and still know that I have value still know that my work has value be willing to take it as it is but also be willing to listen to what people have to say just man yeah, it's well. I um, first of all, I think we're all still striving for that, especially me. Like just for transparency, and this is what I created, and I'm putting it up for critique. But looking back, that's a writer's dream. I don't know how else to say that. Just to have that many people handling your work with care. I don't think outside of well, since MCRC, and I don't think outside of it, I'll ever have that experience again. Um, just because that space is just not offered. Usually workshops, there's too many people so that you don't get that like um, opportunity to have that many people investing in your work because we need to get on to the next. That's how it usually works. And even when I'm going to an MFA program now, but even with eight people, we don't have time to go line by line. We don't have time to go word by word. But since it was with MCRC, it's always trying to question, okay, is this accessible? Can people actually hear it? And then we have to figure out where are we blocking people? Where are we stopping people? So it's good that we're getting 15, 20 people in a room to say, where'd you get lost? And like, like, where'd you get lost? And especially, not all those people were poets. Not all those people were, like, getting their BA, getting their MFA in writing. That wasn't the case. And that was good. Because it's like, this isn't just for people who are poets. This isn't just for academia. That's one thing, as I'm walking in academia, I'm also trying to be um, mindful of, is that I don't want to get caught there, if that makes sense. I want to make sure that I'm still hearing the feedback. I'm still hearing this is too dense, <laughs> or like, or I think academia falls to the trap of too dense, and I think that sometimes the arts can fall into the trap of being too abstract, where it's like that middle ground is lost. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. I can't hear this, I'm lost, there's no stable place in this piece, and so I think as long as you go into a workshop with that in your piece, like just something where people can have, find their footing. Mm-hmm then it will be okay. <laughs> like, they'll find your footing, they'll navigate around, and yes, things have to change. But that's the whole thing of being an artist. You have to be able to separate um, self from your piece, and I'm sure, like, self from your work as well. It's um, just an objective view, because you know, like, okay, it has to grow. Like, mm-hmm. if I attach myself to this too much, then 
when it's getting critiqued or whatever it may be, then I'm getting critiqued and all this. And, it's, and it is difficult, I will say, especially when you have, I think, something I've gone through a lot. It'd be like, okay, I am a black identifying appearing and classified <laughs> female. And when I have um, white classified peers reading my work and they say, oh, well, I don't know what this is and I can't access it. And it's about something that's really simple to me. It's about police brutality. I know what this is. I know the language of this. I know the scene. I know the characters. Why don't you know this? So it's like, it's, um, it's being able to say, okay, either I can limit my work, if that makes sense, to where it's a shared experience for a very specific people, um, or I can go through the work, because it is work, to try to open it to other audiences and say, where are you getting stuck? And like, what do I need to do to try to figure out how to broaden this? But that's a choice I have to make too. Some pieces, no, I'll keep it right where I want it. And like, either you find it, you find your way through, you don't. And other pieces, I'm willing to go through the work. I just have to make a conscious decision. That's good. And whether you recognize it or not, it definitely requires a maturity and mm-hmm. a, and a, a sense of self. Mm-hmm that is missing for so many of us, especially those of us who've experienced significant trauma. One of the very foundational things that are disrupted in trauma is sense of self. Um, And so being able to go into a situation where you are saying, I lay before you Mm -hmm. my labor and I want feedback, I think uh, is huge. And it was a really great experience to participate in it. So now I'm going to fast forward into one of the later projects, the latest projects we've participated in together. And I can be real, real about what that experience was like for me, which is in some ways kind of the workshopping. So um, Joan Ferrante would also, as the pandemic was starting, she had this idea of essentially, what can academia do Mm -hmm. um, to provide insight and be helpful in times of pandemic. And so she had this idea. It came together really quickly within the scope of how slow things move Mm -hmm. to get um, as many disciplines together as she could to offer insight into what that discipline could offer into how to respond to uh, a pandemic. So the name of the book, uh, it's a textbook. It's actually How to Respond in a Pandemic, 25 Ideas from 25 Disciplines of Study. Mm -hmm. And she originally reached out to me to be a reader kind of just someone who can read through it and give some ideas. Um, I read through it and I got to uh, one of the papers about music. Mm -hmm. And I was so moved Mm -hmm. by that paper that I'm like, Joan, can I write one? (laughs) I'll keep reading, but can I write one? And she's like, sure. And so I did. And it's Mm -hmm. like, what can trauma therapy offer Mm -hmm. to this? And you know, I get it down and, you know, having read many of them, I'm like, okay, you know, she had a sample paper. It's good. You know, I don't want to be too heady. I don't want to be too academic and all this stuff. So I put it together, bam, it's done. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it went through um, the editing process. Tell us about the editing process. Cause this is not normal, right? Yeah. Well- <laughs> but it is fantastic in some ways. Yeah. Well, the editing process for that project specifically, it was on such a tight deadline because hopefully it'd be ready for this coming semester. And we're in August already. So mm-hmm. that editing process um, had to be fast paced. But at the same time, it was really just, it wasn't even just having um, a couple editors. We had an entire like team of editors and we had readers advocates just again, to comb through the author's works and say, I'm lost. <laughs> like, just to say, like, it's not going to work. Like, we got it. And the authors are really good about, okay, <laughs> like, okay, then what's dropped or what needs to be changed or what needs to be added and things like that. But it was a, um, I would say that's rare to happen to have reader a reader's advocate team. What is a reader advocate? Yeah, so it's essentially, it's, People. I was on the Reader's Advocate team, and so was um, Kirsten Hurst, and you were also there as a Reader Advocate, and it was essentially this team of people who were there for the readers. They were there to say, okay, 
we have your side on this. Like, yes, we're mindful of the work the writers are contributing. We're mindful um, of their years of research that they're trying to get down in two to five pages. But at the same time, it still has to be accessible. It still has to be um, something that people know matter, especially in a time like this, when we're having, like, we're worrying about, oh, are the, is the food still on the shelves and all this? Like, that was, like, right at the heart of the pandemic. Yeah. And so... Um, yeah, it was just people really looking out for the readers and saying, we're going to make sure that you can access this. We're going to make sure that this matters right now and even after. Um, so those were the, that was a team and I think it worked. Yeah. <laughs> so I was a reader advocate, right? I'm mm-hmm. reading through some of these papers and I'm able to say, mm, that's not really working. Yeah. Like I get it, but I had to work hard to get it. And it was great. And then I got my paperback. And I was like, like yo, man, <laughs> like, did I even write this? It was a great paper, though. It, 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 it was so funny. It it was it was one of those moments, though, mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jay is here. You know, Jay is always here. He can attest. I was like, I, should I even be a writer? I mean, oh I, I, like I was going through this whole thing, oh. right? You know, <laughs> and it took me a minute. Now, if you listen to the podcast, that was not my functional adult. <laughs> That was one of my littles, right? Because, but think about it. Mm-hmm. From at least the age nine, mm-hmm. my whole life has been characterized around do it so right yeah. that no one can find fault in it. Mm-hmm. First of all, it's exhausting. Yeah. It is exhausting. And it's it's not realistic. It denies my humanity. So part of it was this part of me that says, if you were really good, you would do it right the first time. You would do it perfectly the first time. And while that is ridiculous, I live so much of my life that way. Mm-hmm. So when I got it back at first, oh, girl, Sydney spiraling, okay? <laughs> like, oh, ah. And he's like laughing because, you know, it was oh, just, and really, once I gave myself space, mm-hmm. once I stepped into my functional adult, mm-hmm. I reread it. I'm like, this is 100% my work. Mm-hmm. But what it did was it made it accessible for people that I didn't even know what it would need to be accessible for. Mm -hmm. And that is what I loved about the process is, you know, I had several people read it, but they were people who were trauma therapists. Of course, Uh they're going to get it and be like, oh, yeah, girl, that's great. You Mm -hmm. know, yeah, yeah. But I, I didn't have someone I didn't think to have someone who's not in that field. Right. Yeah. We want to look for competence always. You know, is this competent? Is it showing my expertise? Is it giving the pieces that people need to know? What I've loved about this process and being a part of the process on both sides is how can we make sure that this is readily accessible Mm -hmm. for whoever picks up that book? And I think it was effective. Yeah. In an ideal world, it's like we would have been over that, what, 20 times back and forth with the author? Like, if given time, of course, that's how we would have done it, but... Since we didn't have that time, and that's how we had to, like, edit and then run it by the author. But I think, um, as writers in any way, like, we all learned that, to where it's like, yeah, as a um, sociologist professor running it by sociologist, this makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. I run into that fault. As a poet running it by other poets, perfect sense. But let me run it by just, like, a family member. Mm -hmm. Let me, are they actually laughing when I'm trying to have, like, a comedic edge, or are they just like... This is scary. We're like, because that honest first opinion is what's true to them. Yeah. And at the end of the day, we forget about that majority. We forget about the majority of just like, can I actually approach this? Is it approachable? Can I get through it? And can I have the reaction that you intended as well? Versus someone who's a lot more, I, I guess, seasoned in our career, whatever it may be. It's like, yeah, of course you get it. Because it's like, we're studying the same thing. We're reading the same books. We're doing this. So it's like, we want those minds that aren't aligned um because essentially we're all connected we just gotta we just lose each other's language yeah that's beautifully said and what it came down for me which i'm so glad this is my first published work yeah so i'm super excited um with the second one you know following (laughs) behind but what it really helped me realize is a lesson that keeps repeating itself in my life and it's Mm -hmm. simple it ain't about you shonda yeah it's not about you it is your gift but your gift is intended for others So if I'm stuck in ego, if I'm stuck in this is about me, look how smart I am. 
I'm missing the opportunity to reach so many more people. And so I genuinely really appreciated it. So one, if you're listening and you have ties to university, community colleges, even uh, I would say, albeit high school, possibly, Mm -hmm. um, there is this textbook now, 25 different disciplines that have come together since March, April, really, (laughs) to say, what can we offer um, during this time? It's brilliant. Um, brilliantly written from so many awesome authors and edited and just this team process. And I think it also really can be an example for academia. Mm -hmm. Look what happens when you collaborate. Right. (laughs) Right. I don't know. I'm I'm picking on academia right now, but it's across every single Mm -hmm. um, domain you can think of. This idea of collaboration being the enemy because of those things I just talked about. Mm -hmm. If we sat our littles down and said, we're good. And the functional adults in us actually collaborated. The beautiful magic and art Mm -hmm. that we can develop is amazing. So I just love being a part of it and glad you were able to be a part of it in so many ways. Um, So we talked about poetry. Mm -hmm. We talked about even advancing your education in writing and it's humble beginnings of just kind of what I did today. Uh-huh. What are your aspirations for your writing? Um, I think my main thing is first I have to be able to see myself in the classroom and I better hurry up because I'm appointed by next year to start. I'm leading in the classroom, but also I want to make sure that I don't lose community connections. Um, I think that is extremely valuable. And honestly, if it wasn't for a community workshop that I went to, um, Hurston Wright Foundation that was like in Washington, D.C., I would have never applied for the MFA because it it just really, it it propelled me just to say, okay, this matters. (laughs) And like, uh, I don't know what, not to make a waste of it in a way of, I need a structure. I realize that I need a structure. So I definitely want to make sure that I still have some kind of community presence. Um, that would be like my priority aspiration right there. <laughs> right there. And yeah, I just think when I say my main teachers and I'm talking about just people around me, I just want to make sure that those people aren't um, forgotten because I just heard it all my life. I've heard all my life like, I want to write this or I want to say this. And it's just, I don't know how kind of thing. And I just want to be that present say like, okay, let's get rid of those rules because we're going to break them anyway. Mm-hmm. But, um, and get rid of sometimes even just the structure and figure out, um, what matters and what people are trying to say. Yeah. I like that. So this, as you were talking, something that came to me is, the, the shifting landscape of communication. Mm-hmm. So at some point in our history, the human history, uh, writing a book mm-hmm. was, besides word of mouth and passing on oral tradition, was kind of the way you disseminated information. Right. With the, um, the quick access and availability mm-hmm. for everyone to now speak their truth, some truth or their lie, whatever. Everybody's an expert, right? Um, And YouTube has made it that anyone can deem themselves such. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts about writing, its sustainability, its its future amongst a world that would prefer uh, to see a video or hear a podcast? Yeah, I mean, I'm fearful of it too because... As much as I would love to say, like, oh, I hold reverence with long or long written works, it takes a lot. It takes a lot for me to say, okay, I'm giving this the attention. Um, I'm giving it the time and the space. Usually it's because it's an assignment and I have to do it. And I'm grateful that I did it, but that's how it goes. Um, so I am fearful that um, of just that same thing. Like, even with working with MCRC, we're trying to drive so much content, we have to think about time. Like, what we, we started off with 58-minute documentaries. That's out. Like, we have to get this down to 20. We have to get this down to 15. Can we get it to 10? It's like, it's over and over. Like, how can we condense this? And so I'm a bit fearful of that. Um, but I'm also mindful, and I hate to say this, but when growing up, it wasn't 
normal in my circles, at least, to say, oh, what are you reading? You know what I mean? So I'm trying to figure out, well, maybe this will try to, this will be a way for that majority to have their way in as well. So I'm thinking about that too, because I just think that alone is, it was just a saddening experience that I had, like, when I go into campus, it's normal to say, like, oh, who's the last person you read? What are you reading currently? That's normal to have, like, a list ready to go. But, um, again, in other social circles, there is no, what are you reading? Twitter? Yeah. Yeah. Facebook? <laughs> like, it's like, it's not, there's no novel in your response. Um, so I'm hoping that as frightening as this shift will be and, oh, we need it immediately, that it also just... Um, really show the faults in the foundation anyway so maybe we can start fixing them yeah i like that i am i definitely am the person when someone says can you write a blog and Mm -hmm. i'm saying can i do a video instead it just takes less time (laughs) Uh, i can get you that video lickety split Mm -hmm. that blog you might have to wait a couple of weeks however what i am realizing as i am writing this book Mm -hmm. and other writings is the power of the written word. Yeah. And and honestly, I I don't believe it'll ever be replaced. Mm-hmm. I know that libraries don't function the same way that they used to. And mm-hmm. so many people are saying, I prefer an audiobook. But the thing about an audiobook is it's still a book. Yeah. Someone still wrote it. Mm-hmm. And I I'm holding on to that. The yeah. feeling I get when I write, I've even tried to do talk to text, mm-hmm. right? Because people are always talking about you say such beautiful things, but it is a completely different part of me. Mm-hmm. I tried. Yeah. It just does not work. <laughs> I mean, I need straight yeah. fingers to the keys to get my written voice out mm-hmm. in a way that sitting in front of a microphone just does not do it for me. And so, you know, I'm holding on to hope that our written words um, and all of us listeners and everyone who has something to write that it will live. Mm-hmm. Um, because like you said, there's a depth in that. And the exposures will come when we realize that the kind of shallowness that sometimes our videos bring us, Mm -hmm. we will fall back to kind of that written word, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. So is there anything else about your writing or being a writer Mm -hmm. or poet that you want to share with the listeners today or any encouragement you could give? Um, sure. I, um, I really want to hone in just on the fears of writing, they're going to be there. <laughs> like, I just think that if someone just told me, okay, like, you're going to be fearful of continuing. You're going to be fearful of even fixating on writing. Because um, sometimes it feels like a very slow process or non-rewarding process as well. Like, you just have to know, yeah, sometimes I'm going to be submitting to no, <laughs> like, or no reward. And that's okay, but it's still something that it was a story in me that was weighing down and I needed to get that done. Like I needed to get it completely um, off my chest. So I definitely say, um, just know that that's going to be a known fact, but know that you can work through it for sure. Um, uh, Let's see, any other, it's just about writing. Um, Oh, for sure. I would also say, and I kind of touched on this earlier. I think that, make sure that you're still approaching writing with a level of sincerity um, when you're trying to cover topics that I'd say that for some are now important, if that makes sense, or it's like, oh, now we should be doing this. Now we should be writing this again. I think revising your materials, revising your creation is always needed, but at the same time, it has to come from a sincere place. Or again, like what you asked me earlier about what even makes poetry, what makes a piece of writing. If you don't have that in there, if you don't have that one point to where it's keeping you honest, it's keeping you sincere, or it matters, then I don't personally think it's gonna hold up. So I think make sure that you just hold true to that, even though it may not be what everyone else is doing, like it still um, needs to be written, so. Thank you. To that point, I would just say, before you can be sincere and authentic, you got to know who you are. Right. And that's the work that's that I work. talk about all the time. <laughs> yes, right. Yes. Sometimes people do think they're being authentic and mm-hmm. sincere, 
because they're being authentic and sincere to the person they've been told that they are or the person they've been presenting. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes in our writing, that thing comes out and we go, who is that? And sometimes that is the shadow Mm -hmm. of who we actually are. So let's follow that. Uh, So very beautifully stated. Um, So India, I always like to ask my guests for some Mm -hmm. little known, fun, or interesting fact about themselves. So what you got for us? (laughs) Okay, I have my studies that it's an official year now in Kung Fu training. (laughs) So when I went to London, I studied at like the Shaolin Kung Fu Temple. And then when I came back, I just got like my my yellow sash and Wing Chun Kung Fu, and I'll be continuing when I go to Cornell. So I really like it. I like um, just different forms of martial arts. I'm going to try Jiu-Jitsu when I leave. I'm going to try, there's like a class for like MMA and things like that. So I'm just going to try it. It's fine. It's another form of consciousness too, because it's like, you better be present because it's like you have nowhere else to be but in that present moment so I think that's what attracts me to it it's not even like the hitting more so it's like you have to be there I think I really like those moments so that's my fun fact that is fun and awesome you should see Jay's face he's highly intrigued and I'm sure we'll have questions for you after So finally, India, um, if someone heard this and they were intrigued, interested, um, and just wanted to reach out to you, maybe they had questions or just to be connected, how can people find you? Yeah, um, India Hackle on Facebook. Um, Also my email, india.hackle at gmail.com. And then if you want to reach out to the mcrcproject.org, you can also use that. Awesome. We will definitely have the those links and that information in the show notes. Uh, India, thank you so much for being thank with you. us today. Thank you, LaShonda. You are welcome. So to all of my listeners, as usual, I thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget, if you want to reach out to me, if you have suggestions about content or guests, you can reach me on my website, www.thelaborsoflove.com. We're on all the major social media outlets. Don't forget our YouTube channel where every week we put out a Therapy Thursday video and the podcast. Rate, review, subscribe, and uh, share anywhere you get the podcast. Until we connect again, you all be well.